I think every company is becoming a software company. Continuous delivery is really cool because it creates lots of opportunity for VCs. It also creates real opportunity for entrepreneurs. Are we an SMB business and we're building sort of Heroku 2.0? Let's convince the board. Let's get everyone on board that we are uh, an enterprise company. And then the second question was like, what's the product? It's like it was an overnight success. It only took 10 years. And that's kind of how most of our open source tools feel like. All of the projects you guys have released, they become very popular over time. Hi, I'm Paul Berger, founder of CircleCI. I'm Edith Harva, CEO and co-founder at LaunchDarkly. And you're listening to To Be Continuous, a podcast about continuous delivery and software development. You can get in touch with us anytime at our Twitter handle, at ContinuousCast. The show is brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. So Armin, what do you like about continuous delivery? I guess uh, what I like most about continuous delivery is not doing all the things I have to do without it. <laughs> um, you know, it's uh, it, it's funny. I think one of the ways Mitchell, oftentimes if you ever read like a biography of Mitchell, he'll always say automation obsessed. You know, he almost takes it to a bit of a, like an OCD level. You know, if you, if you know him personally, it'd be like, yeah, I need like a device that will like open and close the shades of my house depending <laughs> on time of day because I don't like to twist the little knob. I'm like, you seriously talking about like automating the little knob twist? <laughs> But I think in some senses, like, that is kind of, I think that's sort of the attitude, right? But then, like, you know, taking that knob twist and applying it to, to kind of infrastructure and everything we do there is, like, I really hate that little the whole knob twist of, like, right after I get push, I have to go click a few buttons to do these things, right? And so it's sort of, you know, it might seem insane, but you're like, yeah, I have to do that knob twist, like, three times a day. <laughs> <laughs> Glenn, what do, you, what do you like the best about continuous delivery? Edith, it's a good question. I think as a VC, what I like most about continuous delivery <laughs> is it gives me a ton of opportunity to invest. I, I look at continuous delivery as kind of a, a symptom of a bigger opportunity. Symptom's probably the wrong word, but it's an enabler. Uh, and it's, you know, the, the great news about uh, being a VC in, in the current uh, market environment is I think every company is becoming a software company across industry. Uh, you know, Domino's Pizza, for example, more than 50% of their orders today are delivered online and it's a real boon to their business. So who would have thought a pizza business would actually be a software business, but it is. And when you're in software businesses, you are in a death match with your competitors. And one of the ways you compete is by uh, delivering better software, hearing and listening, listening to the customer and um, delivering as rapidly as possible innovation and features that people need to, to uh, use your product and, and get benefit out of it. So. It's like it turns up the pressure, but it also creates real opportunity for entrepreneurs. And so continuous delivery is really cool because it creates lots of opportunity <laughs> for VCs. Mm. Well, um, you, you, you both gave enough hints that people could probably guess who you are. But do uh, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure, sure. So my name is Armand Dodgar. Um, I'm one of the founders of HashiCorp along with Mitchell Hashimoto. Um, and, you know, I guess my, my background coming into the company was really not very operational, which is kind of funny. Uh, I, I sort of have, like, you know, I'm guilty to admit that I actually didn't even know a config management tool when I started HashiCorp. I know it's sort of like a guilty secret. Mm -hmm. uh, Mitchell tried forcing me to learn uh, when we started the company. It's like, it, you, you have to know one of them at least. But it was really kind of my interest, I think, more in sort of the distributed systems and kind of the end-to-end -end automation that kind of brought me into this world. Yeah, so uh, I'm Glenn Solomon. I'm a managing partner with GGV Capital. We're a 17-year-old uh, venture fund. We manage about 
4 billion in capital across uh, six funds. We're currently investing out of our sixth fund now. Uh, one unique thing about our business is that we invest in both China and the U.S. And um, started with a premise many years ago that the technology world was going to get flatter. And we've seen that happen. So many of our companies are really starting to cross, cross the Pacific Ocean one way or the other in lots of, lots of different ways across different dimensions, which we can talk about. Um, and I've been, yeah, I've been a VC for 20 years. Um, one of my more recent and exciting notable investments is in HashiCorp. Uh, so I, uh, participated in the series a investment, uh, with Armand and Mitchell, uh, back in 2014 now, which seems like Armand was, you know, 16 at the time uh, <laughs> and liked it so much. We led the B series B and just, uh, co-led the series C. Uh, more recently. And so, you know, it's, it's been quite a ride and, and a real uh, learning experience to be on, on Armand's board and Mitchell's board and uh, watch the incredible work that they've done growing HashiCorp. Well, was this the first open source company you invested in? It was not the first open source company I've invested in. I'm actually uh, also on the board of a company I invested back now almost five years ago, a company called Alien Vault, which is a uh, security business that focuses on selling to mid-market um, with a um, threat management and threat uh, uh, detection solution. And they actually have an open source SIM, uh, security information management product that helps um, kind of drive lots of usage of their core product and ultimately leads to pipeline generation and um, you know self-selection of potential interested customers for their product. So it's been very valuable to them. And that kind of gave me a taste for uh, both the good and the, and the challenge with open source and um, made me more comfortable when, you know, back in the Series A, uh, there wasn't much of a, uh, a business model yet created mm -hmm. for HashiCorp. And mm -hmm. so you, you had to believe. Generous. Yeah, yeah generous. Uh, <laughs> there was a lot of work left to be done. And there still is. But, uh, but yeah, the progress has been great. But, yeah, so I've had a little bit of experience now with open source. So the you know, open source and, and, and the, the business models around open source and that sort of thing is, is one of the things that we want to talk about. And I, I'm curious, what, what, what was, uh, Armin, what was that? Uh, what is that business model? What, what does HashiCorp do to actually make money? That is a good question. Um, and it wasn't one that really like came easily. I definitely, definitely would not say we knew going into this, you know, what the right answer was going to be. I mean, when we started the company, the first few years were really just almost exclusively focused on open source product development and evangelism and kind of getting the tools out there. Um, and I think uh, Glenn and the rest of the board was, uh, you know, kind and patient enough mm -hmm. to give us the time to do that. Mm -hmm. And then I think it was really late 2015 for us that it, it sort of we hit this sort of interesting point where we'd released our eighth open source project. And that was kind of what we imagined as being sort of the full portfolio. And so then this sort of kicked us into the sort of next phase of the company, which is like, OK, all the open source we wanted to build, we've built. You know, we know we, they have their independent roadmaps and things we need to do, but sort of the company's next phase is to figure out like what does HashiCorp the company look like and not HashiCorp the set of projects and that was sort of a hard process I think we spent probably six eight months sort of going through kind of what <laughs> a long one what that was <laughs> eight months might be generous <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's like the first the biggest question the hardest question for us was really like are we an SMB business and we're building sort of Heroku 2.0 or are we sort of a, an enterprise business and we're building VMware 2.0? 
And I think for a long time, our answer internally was like, why not both, right? Like, what's the difference, right? Like, you know, one person's paying with credit card and one person's, you know, filling a PO, but otherwise, like, what's the difference? Turns out there is a difference, a major difference. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think eventually what we figured out is we really cared more to focus on the enterprise side, if only because we felt like our open source product let us already kind of reach you know, the broader market, right? Where if we were an SMB, yeah, we could be, a, you know, we could help everyone sort of in a, in a much broader audience, but our open source is already letting us do that. And so the market that our open source wasn't able to address was the enterprise just because they were a different beast, right? They were not going to go download our open source tool and go, you know, run the bank on it without yeah. even talking to us, right? And so where, you know, the rest of the market would. So I think once we had to figure that one out, then it was like, okay, let's convince the board. Let's get everyone on board that we are, uh, uh, you know, an enterprise company. And then the second question was like, what's the product? Because <laughs> like I said, at this point, we had eight open source tools. Mm -hmm. And I think this really then kicks off that notion of like, okay, what's the business model? And I think when we looked around, we we're like, there's a number of ones that you see work in the market, right? There is, we'll do the sort of, you know, as a service hosted model. Mm -hmm. So great, you just want Mongo as a service you know, push this button and we'll manage the database for you. And like a lot of our tools could kind of fit into that mold. Uh, there was more of the sort of support, training, professional services model, a lot of that around kind of open stack. Um, so there was kind of that play. And then there's kind of more traditional, you know, there's the more exotic dual licensing, things mm -hmm. like that. But we were worried that would kind of kill our open source community. Because anytime you see some weird exotic license, you're like not touching that. Then I have to go talk to legal or whatever. Uh, and then the, really the final option was like open core, right? Or mm -hmm. sort of some level of like commercial differentiation uh, and sort of having a different binary. And I think we weighed the different options. And I think in terms of like what we wanted to focus on, it was like we wanted to really focus on being sort of lean, mean software company. And so that route ended up being kind of the most appealing to us. It's like we can focus on sort of the features people want and the capabilities and and not necessarily building out a massive services arm or what is the what is the product then? What is the thing that, that, that is around that open core? Yeah. So, I mean, once we started with kind of that decision, it was a matter of kind of experimenting with the different products and, and figuring out what's going to work. So today it's four different commercial products. So, you know, we have the six open sources, Vagrant, Packer, uh, Console, Terraform, Vault, and Nomad. And then of those, there's four commercial ones, which is Terraform Enterprise, Console Enterprise, Nomad Enterprise, and Vault Enterprise. So each, all four of those ones have basically a commercial variant. What was it like to be on the other side of this on the board? Like, did it seem obvious that they should go a direction? What, what was your role in this? After the Series A, I felt like the company, um, there, there, was, there was definitely about a year's time when we had board meetings where uh, we all left kind of scratching our heads, not sure. It was, it was a, it was a difficult year for the company in a lot of ways. I think in other ways, a lot of goodness was accruing. And Armand uh, has talked to me and showed me curves like, you know, adoption curves with open source. And one of the interesting things I think that uh, we saw was that th these were not meteoric rises. Um, they kind of like, you know, take a while to hockey stick. But eventually, with really all of the projects you guys have released, they've become very popular over time. And so there was there was still an innate belief during even that tough year that, hey, there is a commercial opportunity here. We just need to figure out, A, who's the customer, and B, then how to package something that they'd want to buy and do so in a way that is uh, repeatable. So I never lost that faith. But, you know, 
my, my partners were asking along the way, hey, how's it going over at HashiCorp? <laughs> and we didn't, you know, frankly, there wasn't a lot of the traditional metrics one could measure and feel comfortable with during that first year. You know, as Paul, you mentioned, like this open source thing, it's, it's hard to get right. It creates challenges. But uh, if you can get it right, and I feel like HashiCorp has really figured out how to get it right, there's huge, huge potential. And so what happened after that first year, I think, as, as Armand mentioned, the guys made a very brave but important call to focus, which is really hard to do as a, um, a young company when you're, you know, you're not exactly sure which, you know, you got a bunch of different roads you can walk down and you feel like you should walk down them all. But inevitably, if you do that, you kind of don't put your best foot forward in any of them. And so made a very brave decision to say, like, we're an enterprise company. I think it was then incumbent upon the board to talk about, okay, well, if you're going to be an enterprise company, how do you want to staff? How do you want to build a team that knows how to go sell and support enterprise, one? And two, if you want to go to the enterprise, what does the enterprise specifically want to buy from you today? And how might that change over time? And so a second uh, and key important decision that was made that, that Armand and Mitchell really led uh, during that time after focusing on the enterprise, deciding to focus on the enterprise, was then deciding to take the product. There was a, a, at one time a, a, a view that maybe we could launch into the market kind of a more of a monolithic kind of solution across all of the uh, all the open source. The product that shall not be named. <laughs> the product that <laughs> shall not be it, named. What was it called? Frankenlayer? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and the guys made it, you know, we, we really looked at the pipeline and it wasn't a hard decision to realize, wow, you know, there's a lot of commercial interest in Vault, for example. And, um, and that, you know, has, has then layered, uh, there's commercial interest is layered in with some, the other products as well. And so uh, the company's taken to market for products, which isn't easy, but so far so good. What, what was this monolithic product called? <laughs> I mean, I think that one, uh, yeah, we, we sort of tend to rewrite history now to remove it from the history. But, uh, you know, at the time, I think before we made the call to say we're going to be an enterprise company, the earliest commercial packaging we really tried to go for was a product we called Atlas, right? And so one of the founding principles of the company was like, we want to build Lego pieces and sort of take a Unix philosophy of, you know, build one tool, have it do one thing well, and let the sort of end user pick and choose and compose what they want into their own platform. And so we were sort of anti-platform from the beginning. And so we, you know, through an extreme amount of mental gymnastics, built a platform called Atlas that was basically a shrink-wrapped end-to-end version of our tools um, without calling it a platform. We were willing to call it anything but a platform. Mm-hmm. It was a opinionated end-to-end pipeline for CI/CD. And if anyone was like, well, that sounds a lot like a platform, we're like, no, 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 no. no. It's, a, it's just an opinionated platform, but it's not a, it's an opinionated pipeline, but not a platform. So I think we were, uh, you know, we sort of deceived ourselves a little bit with that. Uh, but, you know, it was moderately successful more in sort of like the SMB audience. And I think once we sort of had that conversation to say, you know what, we're, we're actually an enterprise company. Then you look at this platform where you're like, OK, yes, companies that are maybe less than 50 people, less than 100 people can be customers of it. And, and it is an opinionated sort of platform. Does it make sense to continue investing in this thing in the context of being an enterprise company? Um, and so I think it's super early in that process. It was like, okay, this thing has to be put to bed. <laughs> um, and so we started sort of tearing out the pieces of it, and those became separate products. So instead of the giant platform, we sort of sawed off the Vault capability, and that became Vault Enterprise, and sawed off the console capability, and that became Console Enterprise. And 
So was, was this a closed source product that you were building? Yeah, closed source, gotcha. hosted, okay. sort of SaaS. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then that was the other aspect of it. We realized like the enterprise didn't want a SaaS. Mm-hmm. They're like, that's nice, but we only want some of the functionality of it, not the whole platform. And also it has to be on premise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that was like, you know, the final, like, yeah, this thing's got to go. <laughs> do, do you find when you're selling uh, open source enterprise that's, the developers at the enterprise spend a lot of time contributing back? That's interesting. That's a good question. Um, I think it depends a lot on the organization and their culture. So it's really hard to say. It's like the the hockey stick is not necessarily like the size of the company Mm -hmm. that would really indicate it. It's just like what is their cultural practice and their familiarity with open source. So Mm -hmm. there's some Fortune 500s that, yeah, they will be like, here's our Zendesk ticket issue of like the bug. And by the way, here's the pull request that fixes it, mm-hmm. right? Like that's their level of familiarity and like willing to splunk in. And then there's other people who like, you know, not even read the documentation, let alone get into the like source code of it. Yeah, let me let me ask another way. Um, Do you think open source helps or hurts you in enterprise sales? Definitely hurts. And I'd say it's sort of the ultimate sort of like Faustian deal, right? Is it's like what open source gives you is it's really easy to build awareness. It's really easy to build community and mindshare around it because it sort of spreads sort of virally, right? It's like, I have a great experience. I tell my friends about it. And, and it's sort of like, it goes goes everywhere. And so the marketing side becomes really easy. Then the hard part becomes your sales side, which is you're selling against yourself, <laughs> basically, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Uh, and so the, the enterprise is sort of no different, right? Is they're like, okay, well, we're already using the open source. Why should we move on to your sort of commercial p- packaging now? Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that sense, but it, but it's twofold, right? Is it's, it's that dual-sided blade of like, on one hand, the enterprise is using the open source, mm-hmm. so they're willing to even engage in the conversation. So that's a plus. Mm-hmm. But the downside is like, you know, you have to, you have to jump over your own highest bar. <laughs> I want to take the other side of that argument. Oh. Um, and uh, I... I absolutely understand where Armand is coming from. And I, and there are challenges uh, to go to the enterprise with an open source business for sure. That said, I also see some key advantages. And this is, it comes from the perspective of having many battle scars uh, on sitting on boards of companies that are closed source trying to go after enterprise business. Um, I think the benefit uh, that Armand has articulated that HashiCorp has really been the beneficiary of is this, you know, rabid community and in a world where continuous delivery is becoming more prominent and businesses are more agile and every every company, even pizza companies or software companies, uh, developers and DevOps have become way more important and influential in what technologies get adopted and, and integrated and ultimately paid for in organizations. And so if you can build a, a community of users of an open source that is you know, is is really dedicated to what you do and becomes sort of part of their business process, then it becomes very difficult to go rip it out. Like you have sold through the back door. But but have you sold? I mean, I, I think that's Armin's point. I think you sold a product, but you haven't sold something, something that people are actually paying for. But you've now traversed incredibly far down the sales cycle, having already won the hearts and minds of some of the most influential people in the organization. Now, they may not have the budget, and so then the trick becomes, how do you traverse the next level and make sure that the owner of budget or the business unit owner that, you know, is is willing to write, sign the PO and, and ultimately write the check. And that's that's hard. But believe me, if you're 
coming cold to a business with a closed source model and trying to rise above the noise of every other company mm -hmm. that's selling something similar, that's also very hard. So that's why I might take the other side of that argument. I think they're just too, I don't think they're two sides. I think they're just, sales is hard. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so is marketing. Marketing's hard too. That's what I'm saying. So the, um, you are mentioning like the, the two sides of the blade there. Uh, and the, the, the other thing in open source, I think is, is uh, two sides of the blade is, is the product development process. So, you know, on the one hand, you have a lot of, um, I don't like to call people resources, but let's, 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 go, uh, let's go with that for a second. You have a lot of you know, resources, people coming in from the outside, helping you build the thing. On the other hand, you have a lot of people, a lot of sort of noise in your product development process or your roadmap, or I mean, if you're a, like most open source projects, you don't have a roadmap, you just have, you know, what PRs show up. Right. So how do you, how do you balance those two against each other? Yeah, I mean, yeah, the open source product management might be the one of the hardest aspects of it, if only because there's so many stakeholders, mm -hmm. right? So I think from the early early days, I think it's like before we had any sort of commercial product, I think even at that point there was still this sort of challenge which is everyone has sort of a slightly different use case for our tools, right? And especially like we're not building we're building pretty general purpose tooling, right? right? right, right. So if you think about something like Terraform, you can use it to provision sort of anything, mm -hmm. right? And so, the, you know, then you get these different pulls in the community, which is like, okay, do we sort of overly specialize this thing towards being an IaaS provisioning tool? Do we overly sort of pivot towards, you know, there's one set of community that's like, hey, private data center is really important. It has a mm -hmm. different set of constraints. And so I think, you know, just having navigated that in the early days, um, I think helped us build some discipline around, okay, let's at least understand you know, what's noise here and what's signal, right? Is it one person asking it and, and that person sort of represents a voice of one or is that one person sort of a canary in the coal mine and, you know, a thousand other people also think that way about the tool. And so a lot of that just came down to spending time, more time with the community, mm -hmm. more time sort of at conferences, at, you know, user sites, uh, in sort of the mailing list and on sort of IRC and things mm -hmm. like that to really understand, hey, what's your use case? Like, what are you really trying to solve? Like, but it, it, it feels from what you're saying, and I, I think this is true of almost every uh, open source project that, that has a company behind it, is is that it, it is very much like sort of a, the company is, is primarily dictating the roadmap based on user feedback, even though the user, the, the community contributes. Yeah, I mean, I guess one way to phrase it is like we see the community as being sort of one of our first class stakeholders, mm -hmm. right? So I think in the very early days, I think we saw it as there's two important stakeholders. There is sort of our vision for what the product is and saying, what do we want Terraform to look like in a year and three years and five years? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's sort of the sort of long range guiding vision of it. And then there's the community's input, which is sort of the second pillar, which is, okay, great, we're setting maybe the one year, three year, five year vision, but that doesn't mean there's not detours along the way, mm -hmm. right? And but so, the, the input that you're talking about is, is actually having conversations with them as opposed to people who show up with PRs. Right, exactly. Yeah. Because oftentimes you'll get into these, like someone will file an issue and sometimes you get the really simple issues like, oh, there's a bug. But sometimes like, hey, I can't solve this problem. And that turns into a 200 comment long issue where you're not talking about a bug. You're really talking about like, in some sense, it's this proxy conversation for what is the future of this product? How does it go? Is this a use case that's in scope or out of scope, mm -hmm. right? Um, and those will be the ones where we'll say, hey, let's turn this into a Google Doc. Let's Let's actually like do a video call and bring the community in and sort of talk about like, mm -hmm. hey, but like maybe maybe an do, asynchronous ticket is the wrong way to have this conversation. And you do that in in the open as well. Yeah, because yeah. a lot of times those are like people coming from the community just like filing a ticket saying, hey, I have this mm -hmm. use case. 
I can't figure out how to solve it with this tool. Uh, and that sort of plants the seed of, okay, how do we take this? Do you have a open product process per se? So in, in, in the same way that, that, you know, someone can make a pull request, can they, can they make a pull request to, to your product process or oh, to your roadmap? Interesting. No, not really. And I'd say in general, we tend to keep sort of a loose idea of where we want to go mm -hmm. like past one release cycle. And so it's really only like the next release cycle that we're sort of mm. have a very concrete idea of here's what's going into it and let's sort of lock it in and execute. So it's kind of once we're in the cycle, it's pretty yeah. much a change mid cycle. I find this a really interesting aspect of, of open source development because a lot of the open source development you get is, is, is just code. There's no mm. like pr product is sort of off to its side and, and maybe maybe exists in the head of, of the person who runs the project or the maintainer. But I, I've never really seen like e either projects don't do any product management and don't have any sense of the roadmap. And it's just like whatever, whatever PRs sort of appear or you know, there's there's no real involvement in the community. They can just you know show up with code and, and that's it. And then they you know, often get told when they show up with a code, it's like, oh, yeah, that's that's actually not needed. Right. That's, yeah. It's, it's a tough, uh, tough balance. It's hard. Yeah. And I think we try and hit sort of a middle ground, which is like by having that sort of, you know, one year, three or five year vision of where we want to go. If mm -hmm. the community just stopped showing up with PRs, the project would still march forward. Like yeah, there's yeah, a yeah, certain yeah. vision and agenda and roadmap that we're marching towards. Mm -hmm. And then the PRs will continue to show up. Like that's the reality of it. So when they show up, it's like, hey, do these fit into the roadmap? Do these deviate from where we want to take the scope? And if not, if we can accommodate it along the way, let's have a conversation with the community about what, what that looks like. What's cool. the split between community versus company in terms of PRs and code then? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, in some sense, I think it's changed as the products have matured, right? So I think when we when the products were much younger, it was clear to us that, as, okay. As, as we all were. Yeah. <laughs> it was... It, the balance was much more the, towards company vision, mm -hmm. which was, you know, in the early days, we'd go talk to someone about Terraformer and they're like, what are you even talking about? Like, mm -hmm. what what is infrastructure as code, right? Like, and so it was this different thing where we knew it's like the community wasn't, you know, a very, very small percent of the community was thoughtfully engaging and really understood like what the vision of the tool was. And so it was hard. It was hard for them to really of contribute course, yeah. in a meaningful yeah. way. And so we had to sort of push the project forward. But now mm -hmm. as it's matured, it sort of flipped a little bit, which is like, okay, we're getting pretty close to achieving our vision for a lot of these products, but now the community is coming with all sorts of use cases that we never even thought about. Mm -hmm. And so now there, it's becoming, you know, maybe it went from 70-30 where we were leading it to now the other way around where it's sort of 70-30, the community is leading it. And do, do you find that people are building larger things or smaller things? Are they like fixing bugs or small use cases or are they like, you know, taking leadership? So one of the decisions we made sort of architecturally with all the products was have this sort of notion of the core of the system versus sort of a plug-in surface around it. Just because it's like a lot of these, the problems we solve, sort of our philosophy behind it is like solve a workflow, not solve a technology. Mm. So if we think about, you know, I, maybe I'll switch from Terraform, I'll use Vault. Vault as an example. Vault's workflow problem it's trying to tackle is I have all sorts of sensitive information, whether it's, you know, a database password, an AWS key, so on and so forth. And I have many different clients, right? Whether it's, you know, a Docker container or whether it's a VM. And so you can almost think about Vault as sort of this hourglass shape where Vault sits in the middle and there's sort of an infinite number of things on sort of the northbound, right? Whether it's different database systems, different clouds, different things that you might want to secure that sort of endpoints. And on the bottom of the hourglass, you have the infinite number of clients and platforms and applications and languages. And so very, very early we said, okay, well, great. The common workflow elements, let's make that in Vault core. But then the edge of the system, whether it's 
sort of an endpoint plugin, you say, great, I want to support Cassandra. You can come to us and have a Cassandra plugin or you say, great, I want to add a, a Docker authentication module. Great, you can add that really easily. And you don't have to come in and grok a 50,000 line core implementation of the system. You can be like, oh, great, the plugin is 200 lines. I can contribute that over a weekend type of a thing. So almost all of our products have this sort of modular core versus plugin. And I think most of our contributions tend to be on the plugins just mm -hmm. because the core is, it's not a casual endeavor to sort of like <laughs> context load. Oh, how does like vault core work? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's, that's clever. It's like Linux was kind of one of the first big open source projects, but now you just kind of assume that Linux works. You don't show up and think I'm going to rebuild an operating system. Right, exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. And I think Linux is a perfect example of that same sort of divide, which is Linux had drivers. Yeah, that, well, mm -hmm. that's what I was going, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like, like very rare that you're like, I'm going to change the CPU scheduler for Linux. Like, yeah. well, it's a very small audience. But the people writing drivers, that was very common. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, well, that's, it's, it's very clever for you. Well, it's interesting that, that the the advantage of that, that you know, being able to build plugins or something like that, isn't isn't really inherent in open source. Like it's it's not a thing that, that closed source companies can't do. Like closed source companies can build pluginable things. And often they do via APIs, but then that comes without the ability to share in, in the way that, that, that you do get with open source. Right, exactly. And I think the other effect that you lose with if it's not open source is like for example, many of our plugins might start in the community. Community member has a problem, they scratch their own itch, they build a plugin. And when enough of the community sort of rallies around, it's like, hey, I have this shared problem, that eventually gets upstreamed and mm -hmm. it becomes part of the mainline distribution. And then, you know, it's it sort of maintained uh, as opposed to kind of always being this sort of edge plugin where very rarely, I think, commercial software does a plugin sort of mainline into the, to the actual release. Mm. Probably IP issues. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. Whereas with open source, it's just a much more sort of free flow of that sort of like, hey, yeah, it's like, is this a use case for one person or is this a use case for... A thousand people maybe have this mm -hmm. problem, and and so it sort of naturally filters in from the community. I want, I want to touch back on something you were talking about. How at the beginning of Terraform, it was really hard to get Mindshare because I fear that you're giving people this false perception where you're like, "Oh, I open sourced, and suddenly I got all this viral traction." And I've heard you talk other times about how basically how hard it was. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, it's like what's the old proverb? It's like it was an overnight success. It only took ten years. Um, you know, that's kind of how most of our open source tools feel like. By the time a lot of people come to our open source tool, it's because it's reached them through word of mouth or community or they saw it at a conference, which is sort of like it's after the tool is already successful. So it just seems like the tool must have always been successful, right? Uh, versus from our vantage point, you know, so many of our products, it's like we had to make that call. It's like, do we continue to make this investment? And I think Glenn can sort of, you know, there's board meetings where it's like, yeah, you know, we've been putting in years into this thing is that should we pull the plug right like mm -hmm. when is the when's the right time to pull the plug and so i think yeah terraform is another one of those examples where today people don't think about it as having struggled but actually for the first two years uh it had very little adoption honestly for the first year it was like you know it was a small miracle if it didn't crash uh within mm -hmm. you know 10 seconds of running it uh and so as you can imagine it's not a great getting started experience right you're like you know 90 percent crash rate uh, and so, you know, it just takes a while for the tools to incubate, hit the right level of maturity, right, for you to really figure out how do I explain this to someone in a way that sort of resonates with them, that they're not just like, what? Like, what is this? Is it, it seems esoteric. Um, and so getting the, the mature product maturity there, getting the messaging there, and then building enough of sort of the community, the early adopter community, uh, that it doesn't seem like this ultra high risk toy project is, is actually hard. It takes at least probably two years for most of our tools. 
What are your What are your tools written in? Almost all Go. Um, oh, good answer. Yeah, the only <laughs> <laughs> the oldest is uh, is Vagrant, and that's Ruby. But everything since has been Go. So, so I love to hear two separate questions. What were these marketing techniques you used for open source? Because I think there's this myth of you just you just put it on GitHub and magic happens. <laughs> and then second, how did you get your board to be patient with these marketing tactics, and how are you showing progress? Ooh, those are uh, those are both good questions. Um, so the marketing tactics, you know, I think a lot of it we learned sort of from before actually HashiCorp was a company, right? So actually, I'll, I credit this to Mitchell. Mitchell sort of figured this out. Is when he released Vagrant, it, he he was scratching his own itch. He was like, you know, every three weeks I'm re-imaging my laptop. I'm tired of this. Right? <laughs> like, there's got to be a way out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he really built Vagrant for himself. And it started out, you know, friends, colleagues, you know, other other classmates, things like that. And I think first year, I think Vagrant had like 100 downloads, like the whole year. Total. Total. Not, not, not per day. Yeah, exactly. So Total. 100, so like basically like eight a month. Right, mm-hmm. exactly. Yeah, it would be like, yeah, you talk to a colleague and you get one more download, right? Like it was like you're counting them one at a time. <laughs> And, you know, and then it started being like, you know, you're going to the local meetup groups and talking at like at the time because it was written in Ruby, talking at Seattle RB, which is the, the Seattle Ruby meetup group. And, you know, then you'd start getting, you know, 10 downloads a month. Right. It's like Ooh. huge increase. Yeah, <laughs> it's exactly. like 20 percent more. <laughs> exactly. 25 percent growth. Uh, you know, the rule of small numbers is kind of fun at the beginning. And then it's sort of like you hit these different communities. Right. And so what really tipped it for Vagrant was the config management community. They really figured out that they had a feedback loop problem, which is like, yeah, every time I change my chef script, I have to boot a new Amazon thing, upload all of it, run it, SSH and test it, and it takes half an hour and then tear it down, versus Vagrant took me from a 30-minute feedback loop to a three-minute feedback loop. And so once the config management community saw the value in this, it sort of blew up because it plugged into that marketing channel where Chef and Puppet and folks in the community would sort of evangelize it themselves and be like, yeah, the right way to test it is use Vagrant. Mm-hmm. And then Vagrant sort of, you know, and, and at this time when I say blow up, we're talking about from 100 downloads to 10,000 downloads, well, that, right? That's, so, that, that's, that's real. That's big, yeah. But now we look at it and Vagrant does, you know, 2 million downloads a year. So it's like, you know, it, it, it all becomes relative, right? It's one of these things where it's like, as Glenn says, it takes a long time to get to that hockey stick, but it was like, you know, and there's these sort of plateau shifts where it was like the plateau shift of config management and then eventually some of the early, you know, the LAMP stack, and some of the sort of Rails community started picking it up. And you see these plateau shift after plateau shifts. And then it starts sort of taking on a life of its own. I think really the hockey stick is not as uh, horizontal rather than vertically placed. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's a very long ramp. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then hopefully one day it sort of arcs. And when we look at things like Terraform, is the same thing. It's like first year of Terraform was, yeah, maybe a, maybe a thousand downloads, right? Like... But yeah, people would download it and be like, yeah, I tried running it, crashed instantly. So <laughs> guess what? They stopped using it. <laughs> so a lot of meetups. What, what were the other things you did to try to kind of drive awareness? Yeah, I mean, so early days was lots of local meetups. And then that eventually started going to kind of the conference circuit. So then, you know, your the Velocities and the QCons and, and sort of the DevOps days and sort of the bigger, you know, go from a 10, 20 person meetup to a 100 person conference. The 100-person conferences eventually end up at the sort of 1,000-person sort of velocity-style conferences. Um, and those were the, kind of the big drivers, uh, honestly. And then I think the other side of it was like, you know, very consciously trying to start building a kind of HashiCorp audience 
right? So building kind of a mailing list following, building sort of a Twitter following very, very early. You know, we convinced uh, the board to let us spend a ton of money on a conference. <laughs> and, you know, originally we were like, you know, maybe we'll get 100 people to show up. Like, will 100 people care enough to fly to Portland and, and talk about sort of our DevOps tools? Uh, and we were sort of blown away. It was like way more. We ended up getting, I think, like 250, 300 people the first year. And it's just super exciting. You get this different sort of energy because you have everyone in the room and it's just, it goes from this virtual community of avatars and Slack candles to all of a sudden it's like, oh, it's real. You're, you're talking face to face to the person who filed that ticket. And I think those were really, really powerful for us having those sort of events because I think it made it much more real for us, but it also made it much more real for the community. Yeah. Um, and it just sort of accelerates the sort of effect, uh, that sort of adoption around the tools. Yeah, it's funny. Um, J Jason Limpkin has a saying of, I don't know if it's his saying, but he says it all the time, like, get on a plane. Yes. Yeah, it, totally. It's just, it's a, and actually that was the other thing. Early days, anytime we'd get sort of an interesting email about, hey, will, you know, will console work with 500 nodes? You know, we'd respond to the mailing list, but then I'd send a private response to the person being like, hey, you know, just curious, like, where do you work? Like I'm based in San Francisco. Would love to come and talk to you. And so it's like so many of those turned into these conversations where you go in and it's like, oh yeah, it's like, you know, Twitch. Like the reason we, we ended up talking to Twitch super early was they sent an email about some like random issue they were having at scale. And I'm like, I really like how much scale are we talking about <laughs> that you're running into this issue? And so I was like, I'm just in San Francisco. And they're like, yeah, we're down the street. And I ended up meeting with them and they're like, okay, so here's the story. Like, can it do 12 data centers, 5,000 nodes? And this is like, 10 times bigger than any use case we knew about before that. And we're like, maybe, <laughs> uh, but we're happy to stay at your offices. And like, you know, when you push the go live button and like help you debug it, if anything goes wrong and, uh, and you know, that's what we did. Uh, and we're like, we're just like, yeah, we want to make sure they're successful. And like, you know, it, it's word of mouth, right. Then the Twitch folks sort of talked about it and that made a huge difference for, for console. Yeah. So how, how did you convince your board to stay on this journey with you? Glenn, what, what, what was your take of it? Yeah, just listening to Armand reminded of two two things I'd like to point out. One is it, it was it was apparent even in the early days uh, post Series A that there was a significant amount of overhead associated with this model. So going back to, you know, is open source a good thing or a bad thing? It's a thing. I think if if done right, you have to budget in. There's, there's a significant amount of overhead. Mitchell and Armand uh, have spent collectively no short of thousands and thousands of hours in you know kind of guerrilla tactic one you know go get on a plane go meet go meet the user and go talk at this conference and that conference and um, spend a lot of time responding to you know community conversation and, and really trying to be very accessible and I think others who are listening who are thinking about hey is open source right for me you really need to think through that and be ready for that part of the journey. It's a it's a significant investment and it really doesn't abate. Um, I still think you guys spend a tremendous amount of your time on those uh, open source related community activities. That's one. And the second thing I'd say is we talked about the hockey stick. One thing I think that HashiCorp benefits from today that I think will continue to and the company will continue to accrue benefit from is as you show the community that you're committed to building great open source products and to supporting a community with a well-articulated uh, view of how you're going to manage and focus on open source in addition to a commercial business, I think you get benefit from that. And so if you look at the hockey sticks of the you know more recent projects, they start slow, but I think that they tip up, they tend to tip up 
quicker uh, because I think the community at some point starts to you, you become innocent until proven guilty as opposed to guilty un, until proven innocent um, as a company. And so I now think that the community is, you know, has high NPS with HashiCorp products. And so they're much more likely to look at the next product and, or, or, or project and say, yeah, I want to I want to give that a try. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. It's the sort of the later products were much, much easier to bring to the market just because it's like people trusted us, knew about us, used it already. So it's just an easier conversation to have. But it is hard as a board because, you know, there was no class in business school, at least that I took, that talked about, hey, here's how you assess progress in a company that's doing no revenue <laughs> and, you know, is kind of building open source products with, you know, that, that don't ever really uh, aspire to generate revenue. How do you uh, gauge progress in that kind of world? And so I think um, <laughs> it's not easy. It's not easy. But So how, how did you do it? What, what were the metrics? Well, the thing was we were already invested. So <laughs> St Stickers on laptops. <laughs> I actually attended, uh, and Edith, Edith knows that, uh, and, and I've learned this from, from Mitchell and Armand, uh, that I'm a big proponent of, of you know, doing events early, right, and trying to inspire and energize a community around your company, whether you're open source or closed source early. Uh, there's so much benefit that accrues when you do that, but those kinds of, so I att I've attended all, maybe the only person other than Mitchell and Armand and some of the very earliest employees that have actually been to all three global Hashi comps so far. And, um, that was, you know, part of it. It's just really actually myself going out and trying to, you know, talk to the community and assess, okay, is this really starting to take flight? Yeah. I think that that's so hard because at the beginning, it's just slow. And I think there's there's the other side where if you're closed source, you think, oh, I'll just, uh, I get advice sometimes of like, why don't you open source your product and just watch it explode? And I'm like, I don't I don't think it's that easy. Right. <laughs> it, is, it is definitely not the like, push some open source code to GitHub and voila, the community <laughs> appears. That's like, <laughs> yeah, I think that's the, uh, I think that's the sort of myth of like build it and they will come and it's sort of, you know, build it and you just coughed into the wind basically. Yeah. I, th I think it's interesting that you talked about how open source, you still need marketing, which you just talked about. You still need product, which you talked about and you still need sales. Right. Right. Yeah. Even now it's just like, it, it, even as a commercial company, it's like you, you don't get to escape that by virtue of being an open source company. Right. It's like, yeah, you still need all of the group sort of to be functional. Well, so Glenn, I heard that you were starting your own podcast. Ooh, Edith. Thank you. <laughs> and thank you for the plug. First of all, this is, this has been uh, really fun to talk about continuous development and also um, open source and hear from Armand who has uh, had such a, such a great run. Uh, and is building so much excitement at HashiCorp. But my colleague, Crystal Huang, uh, and I from GGV are going to start a podcast, and we're, we're working on episodes now, focused on uh, talking to founders. And so each of you, Edith, Paul, Armand, you're not off the hook. I expect each of you to be guests on our podcast soon, um, where we're going to ask founders about challenges they've had. And we're going to call it Founder Real Talk. And what we're really after is, um, you know, not the the uh, glossed over shining success story uh, that all of you have had and are continuing to have, but some of the tougher challenges that you faced along the way. And then, you know, how you overcame those challenges. And that's what we really want to dig into. We think that would be really valuable for other founders to hear. So that's that's what we're going to do. That sounds great. I'm going to be honored to be part of it. Yeah, sounds great. I, um, hey, thanks. I, I want to geek out for a second with Armin about something you said at the beginning. 
which was about autonomous code. Just like making stuff be able to be pushed as quickly as possible. What, what do you think is holding us back from that? So there's this interesting effect, um, you know, and I only learned about the, the name of it uh, a few, uh, uh, maybe six months ago, called the paradox of automation. Oh. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's this interesting idea, which is you would think that the more we automate, the more we sort of move, remove humans from the loop, the more sort of resilient systems become, right? Like there's less human error to be made and everything's sort of automated, so how can things go wrong? But I think what the paradox sort of teases out is like, well, what automation is really doing is giving us a longer and longer lever, right? Yeah. And so before it was like, okay, maybe I had to do this manual thing and click 500 times. Now I click one time and I hit all 500 of my machines. What automation doesn't discern is whether or not the change we're making is good or bad. So before I could, you know, manually screw up one machine at a time. Now I can automatically screw up all 500 machines. <laughs> and so I think this paradox is, is sort of sits at the crux of it, which is like, yes, the more we automate end to end, the more sort of continuous delivery we have, we get this huge leverage, but how do we do it safely? And I think this is a big, big question we run into uh, with our enterprise customers too, which is like, great, we, we'd love to give this power of, you know, infrastructure as code and continuous delivery and, and, you know, CICD to our end developers, but we can't let 15,000 developers, you know, jeopardize the bank, right? And you're like, yeah, that's a fair point, right? Like you, you can't, that's, that's too much risk. That's an area where I think there's still more work to do, which is like, how do we, how do we not throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? Because I think that's the natural tendency of the enterprises is great. We'll solve this problem by throwing a ticketing queue in there. And instead of letting you pull the lever, uh, you file a ticket against someone who verifies that you're pulling it in the right way, uh, and then we'll pull it for you, right? And so it's like you throw out all the agility and all the benefits that continuous delivery gave you because now you have a ticket in queue uh, and manual review uh, for like an infinite number of tickets. That, I think, is, is one of the big challenges. It's something we started looking at uh, last year, and we started, you know, where our head sort of went to is like, how do we get rid of the ticket in queue, right? How do we, how do we sort of automate but with guardrails is I think the way we like to sort of phrase it. And so where we went to naturally sort of being developers is like, okay, well, what we need is meta automation, <laughs> right? And so our view is infrastructure as code was sort of level one. It let us say, here's the definition of what sort of the, I want my infrastructure to look like. And so level two becomes policy as code, right? Because oh. it's sort of this higher level language that is reflecting on the infrastructure as code and saying, is this allowed or not? Yeah. So now, instead of you know me making a change and filing a ticket and then someone's reviewing it manually, I make my change, I try and hit apply, and the automated system's like, sorry, can't do that. You just asked for 5,000 VMs, the maximum you're allowed to ask for is whatever, 50, right? Or you're deploying to the wrong AWS region. Like, you're not allowed to do it. And so still having that sort of huge leverage so that if I didn't mess it, if I am within the sort of sandbox, then I can automate and I can get the end-to-end -end sort of benefits, but the moment I sort of try and leave my sandbox, it's shut down in an automated way. So that's some of our thinking. I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily the 100% the answer. I think our view is that might be at least the 80% answer and we can get a lot of the, the benefits of it. Um, but yeah, I think that's a, that's a, that's a tough one. <laughs> I think it's really cool. I mean, um, I, I kind of, I, well, so for one, I love HashiCorp and I kind of assume that you exist. Because <laughs> like, unless you're deploying multiple times, unless you're managing a lot of machines, I don't, I don't think you need a company like LaunchDarkly. Right. right. Um, what I think is that more, if everything pushes and it is right at a certain level, then it should just start feeding out to different users. Right. And depending on their reaction, keep moving out. 
Totally. Yeah, yeah. I think that's sort of like the blue greening and sort of the feature flagging stuff you guys enable is a key part of it. Because I think if you don't have those kind of capabilities, then you live in this really high risk world, which oh, yeah. is like if I make one mistake, game over, I'm killing production traffic. But if I actually have feature flagging and smart traffic routing and I can do you know blue greens or canaries, then I live in a world that's much lower risk. It's not that I won't make a mistake. Everyone's going to make a mistake. Everybody always makes mistakes. Yes. Yeah. But now my mistake only hits 0.1% of my users and not 100% of my users. Yeah. Well, the, there's an interesting distinction between sort of the, the, the blue-green that you're talking about and you know, the, the automated out to 500 machines versus the, the feature flagging, which I think is, is the magnitude at which that risk happens. Right. So it's like if you, if you have you know, one build that goes out to 500 machines or you know, even if it goes out to 10 machines first and 100 machines and so on, it's, it's that full build. And, right. and all the risk from that full build that's being experienced by users versus the the feature flagging, uh, which I think is, is personally a much, much better approach. Right. Yeah. The, 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 not, not better, but I, I think that there is, you know, if you were to remove one from it, I'd, I'd pick feature flags. I, I, I'm, thank you, Paul. Well, that's why I wore my Launch Darkly t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, thank you. All right. Well, um, I, uh, I only wish there was feature flagging for venture deals because if we could <laughs> roll back after the first board meeting or hear <laughs> <laughs> a few of our deals, that would that would be something we'd like to do. 60-day money back. <laughs> Can you work on that, Eden? What's, uh, well, you don't have to name names, but what's, what, what, what happened where you wanted to roll back? Ooh, I just stepped into one, didn't I? <laughs> uh, I've made, uh, I have several of those stories. Let me say this. You don't uh, have to name us by name. <laughs> I can start there, there's the these open source guys and they didn't want to build. They just wanted to keep building products. No users. <laughs> it took and us a love HashiCorp. And, 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 we're and super they built one big involved. project. <laughs> we had to build two more rounds before they even went to market. <laughs> okay. Well, kidding aside, I actually think that, you know, the way I think of continuous delivery, it's kind of like, it's in some ways, it yes, it's X's and O's, but it's also philosophy. And it, it extends beyond code to business business model as well. And I think, you know, we benefit today from the fact that uh, companies are more agile, right? And just the way software is built allows them to be more agile. And so um, if things aren't going well, you can, you can, you know, you can backtrack and uh, roll, roll back to a time when maybe the business model wasn't, wasn't uh, settled. And if you made a decision that you didn't like or a feature that you shouldn't have released, you can, you can, you know, roll back the business feature as well as the software feature. But uh, I've been doing this long enough that, you know, that wasn't always the case. And I'll tell you, it was a much harder business when um, you were building software and you, you kind of built, built, built and QA'd it. And then you kind of rolled it out and, you know, maybe six months later or a year later, and then you kind of finally got customer feedback. And um, that was a much tougher time. You had to make bigger bets. There was a lot more risk. And uh, let's just say that I had my fair share of companies as a result that I wish I'd had feature flagging for at that time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it was so hard also because you really, I, I do think there's a place for sales, but in that model, you more, you very much relied on sales being telling customers you need to buy this. And again, like it, in, in today's world, and you know, open source is definitely one way to do this. You, you, you can educate your champion long before they become a customer. And so they're qualifying themselves as you're qualifying them at the same time. And um, back then, yeah, in, in the old world of software, you couldn't do that at all. And so there's lots of, lots of good stories of companies that ran right into brick walls after spending all kinds of money um, you know, look at look at like Webvan, uh, which wasn't B two B company, it was a B two C company, but uh, it was 
it was an idea before its time. And so there's, you know, there's a saying in, in venture capital that being early is the same thing. Being too early is the same thing as being wrong. And they were too early and they built what might have been a solution that could have worked today. In fact, it obviously does work today to, to uh, you know, look at look at Instacart and look at what Amazon's doing with Whole Foods. But, um, you know, back then it was they spent an awful lot of money only to find out that it was the wrong time and probably not exactly the right uh, route to market. And, you know, a couple hundred million dollars flushed down the toilet. Doesn't seem like the note I want to end the podcast on. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, uh, any final thoughts beyond a, you know, HashiCorp? Yes, there was, uh, you know, a period of a year or so where the company was kind of searching for that model while they were building a very engaged community, but it didn't cost a lot. And um, you know, that's that's the benefit of of agility, right? You can you can make decisions, you can quickly roll back if you haven't made the right one. You can test. Uh, until you get it right, you don't have to spend a lot of money, and that's that's good for our business. I think it's good for the technology business in general. So I'm I'm truly optimistic that the next couple of years will will lead to some great businesses, and I I think each of your guys' businesses has has great potential as a result. Armin, final uh, final thoughts. You know, I think w one thing I guess I don't want to leave people with the impression with is that there is a super predictable formula for open source. I mean, I think. We've gone through, I mean, we did eight open source projects and there's just so much variation even within those. Like same style, same approach, right? Same team that's doing it, same sort of, uh, you know, we're holding a lot of things constant about it, but the results just vary so wildly between them in terms of is it the right time, right? Some of our tools, I think like, you know, surf were sort of wrong timing, right? To Glenn's point, like too early is the same as being wrong. You know, it, it, how do you tease apart the flatline adoption curve of surf that stayed a flatline from the flatline adoption curve of some of our other products that didn't stay a flatline, right? Like in the early days, they look the same. They look like a flatline. And so I think it's, uh, you know, there isn't necessarily a perfect formula. We haven't necessarily got it to a science yet. So there's still an art to it. There's still some... Uh, there's still something, uh, some wizardry, I guess, there. I don't know, some luck. Certainly a lot of luck. But uh. yeah. The beginning is so hard. What you said stuck with me about, what was it, 100 downloads in the first year? Yep. I mean, that's... Yeah, is that a successful product or a failure, right? It's, like, <laughs> it's really easy now, 10 years later, to say Vagrant was a success. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's so hard. I mean, um, I've been an in, in engineer and a product. It's so hard at the beginning where you, you want to believe... And you're not getting you're getting in some signs. A hundred is more than zero, but a hundred is still pretty. <laughs> it rounds mm. to zero. <laughs> <laughs> if you stay linear, it's going to be a long road. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming by. We really appreciate yeah, so. you joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Thanks, Edith. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for listening to this episode of To Be Continuous, brought to you by Heavybit and hosted by me, Paul Bigger of CircleCI, and Edith Harbaugh of LaunchDarkly. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. While you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. Thank you.